book of Acts together. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, there are men coming up the aisles right now with Bibles, and you get their attention. They'll put a Bible in your hand. And if you don't own a Bible, um, that Bible is a gift from the Lord to you today. God wants everyone to own a Bible and to know their Bible. And, uh, and so do we. Acts chapter 2, verse 1. And when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house while they, where they were sitting. And then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance." And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. And then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Pergia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. And so they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, whatever could this mean? And others said, they're full of new wine, they're drunk. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. For these are not drunk as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day, 9 a.m. But this is that which was spoken of by the prophet Joel, and it shall come to pass in the last day, says God, that I will pour out of, my, out of my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Let's pray together. Oh, let's see there. One more here. Let's see. Yes. And on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my Spirit in those days and they shall prophesy. That's where we want to stop. Let's pray together now. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for your presence with us. We thank you for the opportunity to worship you. And Lord, we continue our worship now as we just look to your word and we see these wonderful things that are occurring in this passage, and we know that you, Jesus, are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we want this same dynamic that we read about in the early church to mark our individual Christian lives as well, and this church as well. And so we pray that you would speak to us in a way that each one of us can understand. You are our Heavenly Father, and we need to hear your voice, Lord, and we thank you for the confidence that is ours, that you love us, that you are for us, that you are always wanting to disciple and to train us. And we pray that you would do that today. And then, Lord, that you would confirm your word with accompanying signs and wonders in each one of our lives. We don't want to just 
read these things. We don't want to just know these things about an ancient group of Christians 2,000 years ago. We want to experience all of this in our Christian life as well. And so, Father, we ask for that work of your Holy Spirit in this room and in our individual lives, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Forty days after his death upon the cross for our sins at Calvary, and at the time of his ascension into heaven, Jesus commanded the disciples that they not depart from Jerusalem, but instead wait for the promise of the Holy Spirit, the baptism with the Holy Spirit. And 120 disciples made their way into an upper room in the city of Jerusalem to spend their time in prayer as they awaited this next great event in the history of the world and in the history of the church following Jesus' ascension, this promise of the Father, this baptism with the Holy Spirit. And it was now 10 days after Jesus' ascension, early in the morning, of one of the three great feasts of the Jewish religious calendar, the Feast of Pentecost. We know that it was early because we noticed in verse 15 that Peter speaks of it not yet being the third hour, not yet being even 9 a.m. in the morning in which these events occurred, when the Holy Spirit showed up in that upper room like a locomotive, like a jet engine that had been uh, started up and the people were baptized with the Holy Spirit in that upper room just as Jesus had promised that God the Father would do. And we're going to examine the beauty, and it is very beautiful, the supernatural phenomenon that surrounded this event of the baptism with the Holy Spirit and what it has to do with us. But first I want us to get a little bit of a bird's-eye view concerning this scene uh, we know how we look at it as we read the Bible, but God looks at it from His vantage point. What's happening here from the vantage point of heaven so that we can fully appreciate what really occurred on that day of Pentecost 2,000 years ago? And so it's important to understand what happened in God's eyes on this particular day of Pentecost. At that moment in human history, as it's described for us in these early verses of chapter 2, the most amazing birth in human history, next to the birth of Jesus himself, his incarnation into the world, occurred in the formal birth of the church, the birth of the body of Christ, Jesus now in human history expressing himself, his love, his purposes through us as Christians, through the person of the Holy Spirit. And all of the miracles surrounding this great event constitute heaven's birth announcement to the entire world. We remember when Jesus was born into the world that there was a tremendous birth announcement. We give birth announcements in the form of, <clears throat> excuse me, cards that we send in the mail. For Jesus, there was this heavenly host that began 
to give praise for this gift that had been given by God and the presence here of these shepherds that were out in the field. And here is the same thing. A birth has occurred, and all of this supernatural phenomenon is God's way of declaring the specialness of this birth that has occurred on the day of Pentecost. In the Old Testament, when the tabernacle, which was also known as the Tent of Meeting, was dedicated at the time of Moses. The, and that tabernacle, that tent of meeting, represented a place to meet with God. We're told that when that tabernacle was dedicated to God, that the glory of the Lord filled it. And Moses was not able to enter the tabernacle of meeting because the cloud representing the presence of God rested upon it and the glory of the Lord fulfilled the tabernacle. And later when the temple was constructed by King Solomon as a place again to meet with God, again, the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. First Kings records it this way, and it came to pass when the priest came out to the holy place that the cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not continue ministering because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. And then now here on this day of Pentecost, the Lord was raising up a new temple for the Holy Spirit, a living temple for the Holy Spirit, raising up the church, the ecclesia, the called out ones, and it will be a temple not made with hands. It will be a living temple as the Old Testament and the New Testament both testified, a temple made up of human beings who constitute living stones that make up this temple that is found all over the world and constructed of every single Christian who exists in the world. The temple is not limited to one geographical location but spread throughout the world. And it will now be through these living stones that man will be able to meet God, come into contact with God through his Holy Spirit, through these individual human beings who are in relationship with God. And now, as he had done earlier with the tabernacle and with the temple, God publicly caused his glory to come upon this new temple called the church called the body of Christ, and he filled it with himself. And just as the outpouring of his glory and his presence and Holy Spirit upon the Old Testament tabernacle and the Old Testament temple had this powerful effect upon all who were present, the same thing happened here. A new dwelling place for God's Holy Spirit was being dedicated to God on that day of Pentecost. It is very significant that we are told in verse 1 that all of this occurred on the day of Pentecost. And why on the day of Pentecost? What was God communicating by doing this great event on the day of Pentecost? Why did the Lord wait 50 days, roughly a month and a half after Jesus' death, his burial, his resurrection, to then pour out his Holy Spirit upon his disciples? Why the delay? Why didn't he do it immediately? There had to be a reason for it, and there is a reason for it. And the reason is that this outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost was done in order to fulfill 
the Feast of Pentecost and to provide mankind with the spiritual substance of which that Old Testament feast was a symbol. Jesus declared of himself, he said, do not think that I came to destroy the law and the prophets. I did not come to destroy but to fulfill. Jesus spoke to the religious leaders of his day. He said, you search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have everlasting life, but these are they which testify of me. In the book of Hebrews, the writer of that book declares that the volume of the book is written of me, speaking of the Messiah. All of this is intended to teach us something about Jesus, the volume of the book. And this is why no teaching of anything from the Bible is truly complete until it has been made to speak of Jesus in some way. The volume of the book testifies to him. That word Pentecost is a transliteration of a Greek word that means 50, and that's what Pentecost means is 50. And the feast was named this because it occurred seven weeks and one day after the Feast of Passover. And the Feast of Passover is a celebration of God's deliverance of the Jews from the bondage of Egypt. That was the, the, the celebration, the deliverance and salvation of the Jews from the physical slavery in Egypt. And Jesus died on the cross during the Feast of Passover almost 2,000 years ago in order to save mankind, not from the physical bondage of Egypt, but from the greater bondage of sin. The Old Testament Passover was a symbol, it was a type, it was a picture of a greater thing that the Messiah would introduce into human history when he was ultimately born. And Jesus, when he died on that cross, he provided to a, it to us, and thus he fulfilled the feast of Passover. The feast was a symbol, a picture of the substance that Messiah would bring into human history. In the same way, the feast of Pentecost was always celebrated in the same way. The offerings were seven offerings of uh, burnt offerings to the Lord. In addition to the burnt offerings, there were grain offerings and drink offerings. There was a sin offering. There was a peace offering. All of it was pretty standard stuff as it related to Old Testament sacrifices and Old Testament offerings went. But there was something offered to the Lord during the Feast of Pentecost that was never offered at any other time in the course of the religious year. It was the one time when, un, when leavened bread was brought to the Lord as an offering, though it was never offered, ultimately burned upon the altar. And in the Scripture, leaven is always a picture of sin. And as a picture, all of it was a picture of the fact that on the feast of Passover, God would send His Holy Spirit to birth this thing called the church, called the body of Christ, knowing full well that this church would not be perfect, it would not be sinless until one day we find ourselves in heaven, but that it would be made up of very imperfect followers of a perfect Savior. 
The Feast of Pentecost is also known as the Feast of Harvest in the Old Testament. And during this feast, the first fruits of their physical grain that harvest that was now ripe and, and all ready to be harvested, it would be offered then to the Lord. And here on the day of Pentecost, fully come, and it's important to recognize that word fully, we have the substance of which the Old Testament feast was merely a type waiting to be fulfilled by the coming Messiah, because on this day it began with the formal birth of the church through the baptism with the Holy Spirit upon the 120 in that upper room. But before the chapter is over, that 120 is going to be 3,120. Because before that day is over, that day of Passover, uh, that day of Pentecost, rather, when the chapter comes to an end, 3,000 people will be saved or harvested in response to Peter's sermon with untold millions and millions of people being harvested from in the last 2,000 years from that day right into this room here this morning. And thus we have an understanding of what Luke is communicating when on that day, he says, the day of Pentecost had fully come. It had fully come. It had never fully come until on that day. For 1,500 years, the Feast of Pentecost had come and gone and come and gone and come and gone. But on that day, it had fully come. It had come to stay, and it was fulfilled by the God of the New Testament and the Old Testament in honor of His Son. Now I want to take a moment as we understand what happened on that day in the eyes of God and what was begun in that day in the eyes of God to take a moment to notice the supernatural phenomenon that accompanied this great event and what this supernatural phenomenon was intended to communicate to us. I wonder if we read just in the privacy of our own heart as we read about this work of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, if half of us, if God did that in this room this morning, if half of us wouldn't run to the exits before the Lord got to do it. Three supernatural phenomenon uh, occurred on that day. And as someone has put it very well, I think, there was a sound to hear, there was a sight to see, and there was a miracle to experience. And the sound to hear is described in verse 2. There came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. So we have this description of this sound that comes from heaven. It doesn't sweep into the room from some horizontal distance making its way across Jerusalem and then sweeping horizontally across the room. It came directly down from heaven straight into that room, and it was as a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the entire house where the disciples were sitting. And you imagine yourself in that room, constituting one of the 120, and there you are. You're praying for the promise of the Father. 
You're praying in one accord earnestly that God would baptize you with the Holy Spirit as Jesus had promised. And then all of a sudden, a roar begins to come in the distance from somewhere over your head. And this roar continues, and it continues like this great wind coming closer and closer until suddenly it bursts upon you in the room that you're sitting in. And I think it's very important to notice Luke's description carefully. There was no actual wind, only the sound as of a rushing mighty wind. If there was an actual wind that corresponded with the sound, there'd be nothing of Jerusalem left. There'd be nobody left in the upper room. They would have been blown over to Bethany or into Bethlehem. And so it was simply the sound. And I don't know how many of you have been through a tornado or a hurricane or something like that, but they say that the sound alone is, is deafening. Someone describes it as like a thousand freight trains coming into town. And that's the kind of sound that they were hearing. But not only them in the upper room, that's the sound that the whole city of Jerusalem was hearing because the sound drew a crowd of religious, devout Jews from all over Jerusalem. Why does this great crowd uh, assemble itself there around that upper room for Peter then to preach to them, except that this supernatural phenomenon was intended to impact not only the disciples, but also to impact and draw a crowd to hear the truth concerning uh, Jesus Christ. That's the sound that all of Jerusalem was hearing as well. And of course, wind is one of the many images used in the Bible to describe the Holy Spirit. Jesus spoke and said, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. And so is everyone who is born of the Holy Spirit. And this great sound that came into that room, a beautiful and powerful announcement to everyone that was present of the presence of the Holy Spirit. Again, it was uh, heaven's announcement of, of the coming of the baptism with the Holy Spirit. And here the wind is a symbol of the Holy Spirit's power. Jesus had promised that this baptism with the Holy Spirit would be the provision of God's power to be witnesses to Jesus in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the earth. And here as they sit in this room and they hear this tremendous wind, but they don't experience the power of it, and they probably were saying, I'm glad that we're not experiencing a, a, a physical, actual wind that corresponds with the greatness of the sound of this, or we would all be destroyed. But as they listened to that great wind, it was a reaffirming to them, a revelation to them of the greatness of the power of the Holy Spirit that had just now entered into their life. They were given a sense of the greatness of the power of the Holy Spirit. God had promised that power, and here He delivered that to them, and I doubt any of them ever forgot that. Second, there was a sight to see, verse 3, then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. Now, I want you to notice in the passage that Luke is having trouble describing 
this phenomenon. We've got a wind that is a sound, but there isn't the actual wind. He isn't saying that this is an actual fire, but it's the closest thing that he can uh, come to describing it in terms of his uh, life experience and, and his reference to the physical world. There weren't any halogen light bulbs in those days or things that we know of today. And so the closest thing that he could come to describe it wasn't an actual fire, but fire was the closest thing that he knew of to try and, and to explain it. And he, again, trying to describe an indescribable something with the limitations of the vocabulary that he possessed. A.T. Robertson, who is the author of a tremendous uh, resource concerning uh, the Greek, which is the language of the New Testament, and the resource is called Word Pictures in the New Testament. And as he breaks this passage down, in essence, he declares that what is being described here is that a fire-like appearance presented itself at first in the room as a single body, one great um, fire-like presence comes into that room, and then suddenly sections of flame begin to break away as if they were cut off from the larger hole in the same way that a butcher takes a larger piece of meat and begins to cut away smaller sections of the meat. And then this fire then moves then individually to rest upon each person that was present. And it's a beautiful picture of the awesomeness of the Holy Spirit, but also of how personal He is. He came, comes into the room, so to speak, in, in this form of this great fire, this something that seems like fire. But He isn't just bringing His presence into that room to wow them. He has a personal interest in every single person experiencing His power and His presence. And so He divides Himself then personally, comes to each one individually, showing in a beautiful way how interested the Holy Spirit is in each one of us experiencing Him. And, of course, fire is a very common symbol of the Holy Spirit in the Bible, and it represents purity, and it represents the Holy Spirit's ability to purify, which is an important part of representing Christ. Jesus said again, the purpose of the baptism with the Holy Spirit was for us then to be witnesses to Him in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth. Well, what do we need in order to do that? We need power. We don't have the power to do that. But we also need a purification in order to do that. None of us in and of ourselves, no matter how much we love the Lord, will ever be able to represent Christ in His purity apart from this baptism with the Holy Spirit. And the phenomenon that is occurring at this particular event is all to indicate what the Holy Spirit brings into our lives as we pray for the baptism of the Holy Spirit and receive it with a desire to be a witness unto Christ. And then the Uh, Number three, the miracle to experience in verse four, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit 
and they began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So first of all, Jesus had promised that the promise of the Father would come upon them as they would wait in Jerusalem. And here in verse 4 is the fulfillment of the promise. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. They were baptized with the Holy Spirit just as Jesus had promised. And then they began to speak with other tongues, and the Holy Spirit gave them that utterance, a supernatural ability to speak a language that none of them had previously learned. And what God was communicating through this phenomenon of the gift of tongues, and we'll talk about it more at length at another time, but certainly one of the things that he was communicating in the bestowing of this gift of tongues on that day of Pentecost fully come was that this birth of the church was going to impact the entire world, that this birth of the church was going to be, and this church was going to be made up not only of Jews but also of Gentiles as well, and that they would, the church would be made up of people, as is described in the book of Revelation, from every tribe, every kindred, every nation, and every tongue. Again, the meaning behind every single uh, bit of the phenomenon that is given there on that day. And I think the reasons for the miraculous events surrounding the day of Pentecost is, first of all, to make clear to the people that here is, we are, we're waiting for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We're waiting for the promise of the Father, and now it has happened, and unmistakably it has happened, and it communicated that to the disciples, what you've been waiting for has now happened. This phenomenon was intended also for the sake of the lost in the city of Jerusalem, to gather them again, as we mentioned, as a crowd, to also hear the gospel and then be saved and baptized with the Holy Spirit as, uh, as well. And then to the raising of the questions, the supernatural events that happen, cause them to start to take pot shots at what, uh, what's happening with these Galileans, that they're speaking these languages and this sound like a freight train is coming through this room and so forth, and it sparked their interest. Why is this happening? And then Peter then preaches to them the gospel, and they end up saved, and the church is then launched in a very, very big way, 3,000 saved in the city of Jerusalem before the day is over. So it was a special event, and, it, and the baptism with the Holy Spirit, and it warranted a special event, and God gave it to them. The day of Pentecost fully come, the baptism with the Holy Spirit on that day of Pentecost was a really, really big deal in the eyes of God. And so he made a big deal of it before them so that even 2,000 years later as we sit in a room here, not able to experience it physically, but to experience it in some level by the Holy Spirit through the Word of God, we will realize that this baptism with the Holy Spirit is important to God. He believes He gave something great to mankind and to the church in bestowing it upon uh, us and that we would be eager to receive it to receive that power to be witnesses under Jesus everywhere we might find ourselves all around the world, to long for it and then to receive it 
which then brings us to closing with a couple of important applications of this concerning our lives as Christians. And surely this passage is intended to ask myself as a Christian, have I been baptized with the Holy Spirit? Have I been baptized with the Holy Spirit? Does this power, does this holiness, does this uh, dynamic, this, is there something unexplainable about, about the Christian life that I live that raises questions in the minds of other people in terms of where does a life like that come from? Have I been baptized with the Holy Spirit? And I think that it's important to realize in the midst of all of the confusion, all of the controversy that surrounds the things of the Holy Spirit in the body of Christ today. I think it's less so now than 20 years ago when it really divided the body of Christ, what people believed concerning the Holy Spirit and whether they believed in the baptism of the Holy Spirit or they didn't believe in it and, and so forth. But I think it's important in the midst of the controversy and the confusion that, that surrounds all of this that concerns the Holy Spirit, even into this hour in, in church history, that the baptism with the Holy Spirit, it is not the invention of Pentecostals. It is not the invention of charismatics. And God bless the Pentecostals. They name themselves after this event in the Bible. God bless the Pentecostals, but they did not invent this event called the baptism with the Holy Spirit, this reality called the baptism with the Holy Spirit. It is the promise of God the Father to every single Christian who is alive. And that ought to cause every single Christian to relax related to this a great experience that God has for us and to realize only good gifts come from him and I want every single thing that he has for me. It was his idea, God the Father's idea, and both God the Father and Jesus want every single Christian to be baptized with the Holy Spirit, not merely to be indwelt by the Holy Spirit, but that a torrent of living water would be coming out of our innermost being, that we would impact the world for Christ that is all around us. And so the Holy Spirit is given to give us, a, as the passage speaks to us in the imagery of the, the supernatural phenomenon, the Spirit is given to give us the power to live a life like Christ, to provide us with a purity and a refining so that we can live a life like Christ and then also to give us a heart, uh, Jesus' heart, for the whole world to be saved. Through the years, I've run into a number of Christians, not that many, but a, a, enough of them to get them to spark my thinking. And I've had them mention to me the fact that uh, observing the church and the church speaking of the body of Christ as a whole and how it is that we're so careful to celebrate the fulfillment of the Passover on the Good Friday and then to celebrate the Feast of First Fruits and the fulfillment of that on Easter Sunday or Resurrection Sunday. But how come we don't celebrate the fulfillment in an equal measure of the Feast of Pentecost on an annual basis? 
and allow it to search our lives as Christians at least once a year that every Christian in the entire world would ask themselves once again, Does, is my life characterized by the baptism with the Holy Spirit to remind us of our need for this great work of the Holy Spirit and the importance of being refilled? And I'll tell you, it wouldn't be a bad idea if on an annual basis the church did so. I want to close with an interesting fact concerning the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit coming upon God's people historically in the Old Testament and the New Testament that sometimes is lost upon us as Christians in this new covenant. Sometimes there's a curse of familiarity concerning the things of the Lord. It's all we've ever known, and so we lack an appreciation sometimes for it. But just take a moment once again as Christians to, in a fresh way, think about this great privilege that is called the baptism with the Holy Spirit so we can give him the praise and we can give him the thanks and the worship for this great event. I don't know about you, but on some, and, can't, and I know that what's true of me is true of you, but because of the work of the Holy Spirit, I enjoy a quality of life on a daily basis that I could have never hoped to experience on my own a quality of hope, a quality of purity that I would never otherwise know, a power that I would never otherwise know, a love for people that I would never otherwise know. And it's the same thing for you as well. And it's because of the baptism with the Holy Spirit. The privilege of being indwelt by the Holy Spirit, each and every one of us as Christians, and overflowing with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And when Peter rose up to give an explanation to the crowd that had gathered as a result of this baptism with the Holy Spirit, all the supernatural of it, he quoted in verse 17 from the book of Joel, where God promised a day in the Old Testament. He promised that a day would come when he would pour his spirit out on all flesh. And I don't know if you circle words in your Bible, but if there's one word that you ought to circle in that verse, it is that word all, because that's the great word that would have impacted not only the 120 in that room, but would have impacted that great audience of Jews as they listen to Peter now begin to preach to them and quoting and giving a biblical basis for the experience that they were seeing before their very eyes and hearing before their very ears. And Joel spoke of a day when God would pour His Spirit out upon all flesh, sons and daughters and young men and old men and men servants and maid servants. Again, the shocking word is all. Because under the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, very few Old Testament saints had the experience of having the Holy Spirit come upon them. For the most part, under the Old Covenant, the Holy Spirit would come upon certain leaders or upon certain persons that God had anointed for specific tasks. And once the task was accomplished, then that anointing would be lifted off of their life. Gideon, David, Samuel, 
Samson, Elisha are among those that are described as having the Holy Spirit come upon them in the Old Testament. And when these Old Testament saints would read longingly in the book of Joel of the day when the Holy Spirit would baptize every saint with the Holy Spirit, when they read of the day that we live in, the covenant that we live under, they would smack their lips at the possibility that a mere manservant or maidservant or just a son or a daughter, not just a king, not just a prophet, but an average person, every person in this new covenant would be able to experience this power. And as they would read about it in Joel, they would long for the day, and that's the day that we live in. Praise the Lord. And God protect us from that curse of familiarity concerning all of this. And God help us never to lose our awe over this incredible privilege and blessing that is ours, that I am, because of the blood of Jesus Christ and my faith in his sacrifice, I have the privilege as a Christian to not only be indwelt by the Holy Spirit, but to be overflowing with the Holy Spirit, and that he gives this power to us not merely or supremely that we might lengthen somebody's leg, as wonderful as that might be in a healing meeting, but that he has given us this power in order to experience the greatest thing that a person can experience in life, and that is to live the life of Christ in some measure in the fallenness and the brokenness of this world before we one day make our way into the glory of heaven. To experience that life and all of its beauty, all of its power, its holiness, its attractiveness, and its peace. What a marvel. And I think that sometimes, as I've walked with the Lord since 1980, so you do the math. And it's not my place to judge another man's servant. I have no interest in it. But when you look at the totality of the body of Christ as a whole, in the existence of this gift, this promise, this privilege, And the number of people that refuse to believe in it despite the teaching of the Bible or because of our own personality, our own comfort or discomfort with certain things, unwilling to be open to the fullness of the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So there's a reason that these kind of things are in the Bible to create a longing within our heart to be baptized by the Holy Spirit and then to constantly be refilled with the Holy Spirit 
until one day we enter into heaven on our own or we do so as a whole at the rapture of the church. The passages in the Bible to produce a thirst for this, a hunger for this in each of our lives. And then for those of us who've already experienced it, to appreciate it and to possess an awe over the privilege that is ours every single day that the Old Testament saints would have given their right arm to experience for one day how rich we are in this new covenant that is ours because of Christ. If you sit here this morning and you are not yet a Christian, you have not yet trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, that's where all of this begins for you. And there are going to be pastors and there are going to be other men and women up in front immediately after the service, and they'd love to pray with you to become a disciple of Jesus Christ. God never calls a single person to follow him and then to live a holy life or the life that's described in the Bible or a life like Christ and our own power. If you look at the Christian life and say, yes, I remember earlier in my life hearing sermons as a young boy or a young woman and in church and, and reading the Bible on my own, and I got out there and I thought, all right, I'm going to try and live this in my own strength and try to live this life, and you failed miserably, and you thought, if I'm going to fail miserably, I'm going to fail miserably at sin and not at this, and you walked away from it not realizing that God will give you the power to live this life. And so salvation is a free gift to you today from the God who created you and loves you and the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the power to live the life that we read in the Scriptures, the life like Christ, the greatest life that's ever been lived. And it's all there for the asking and it's all there for the receiving. After the service is over, you come forward and we'd love to pray with you to begin that miracle, that everlasting life, that abundant life that God wants for you now. And I'd like the worship team to come up and to come out right now, and I just would like to take a moment as they will close us up, and they're going to sing a song that has to do with the Holy Spirit. You will recognize it, and all I want it to do is this, is if we sit here today and and you've never been baptized with the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, if we being evil as earthly parents know how to give good gifts to our children, how much more will our Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? And if you've never asked for the baptism with the Holy Spirit, this power to live like Christ, just ask Him for it while we sing this song. And if you need to be refilled with the Holy Spirit and the car drive from home over to here, and the discussion that you had with your husband and your wife and the children or whatever is an indication that there's a need to be refilled with the, with the Holy Spirit, then just ask to be refilled with the Holy Spirit now. And then for this fresh awe in an environment of Christendom where everybody wants to 
argue over these issues and these realities and keep us one or two steps away from experiencing them and experiencing awe at the privilege that is ours to be able to walk in the baptism of the Holy Spirit, for that awe to once again flow over us and to refill us. And so Mike and the team is going to lead us in worship now, and then I'll dismiss you at the end. Fly this place and fill 